Thank you, Cassidy, for that ministry and music. Trust you all have a handout tonight as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, talking about this wonderful change that takes place, moving from death to life. Last week, we considered the greatness of God's resurrection power that was directed towards us and making us alive in Christ. So the theme tonight is we consider the fullness of what it means to have been made alive in Christ. It's a wonderful depiction of our new existence. Uh, let me give you the context. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'm actually doing chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 tonight, but I'll read the first seven. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I begin by looking at the believer's condition before experiencing God's life-giving power. First, there's a summary statement of the believer's condition before experiencing the life-giving power of God. We were spiritually dead, living in our sinfulness. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. It does not say you're dead because of your trespasses and, and sins, but we know that to be true as well. But here the emphasis is the is allocative. It's, it's the place in which our deadness is found that is in the trespasses and sins. That characterizes, summarizes our deadness. Now we have a depiction of what it looks like to be dead in one's trans transgressions and sins. First, to be spiritually dead means that one's life is characterized as being habitually sinful. Walk is a metaphor for habitual and repetitive conduct. It is the way in which one lives one's life. Ephesians 2.2, in which you once walked. That is, we walked in our trespasses and sins. That was the way in which we conducted ourselves. Ephesians 4.17 picks up on this again later in the book. Now this I say... I'm testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their mind. Number two, to be spiritually dead means that we lived in keeping with the evil age in which we live. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says, in which you once walked, now following the course of this world. The course is literally the word age. It is this period of fallenness that affects everything around us. We live in a fallen period of time. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's another way to say it. Our age that we live in is an evil 
age. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, you see all these things are going to be applied throughout the book of Ephesians. That's why we have to have a good foundation for these applications that will come later in the book. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, look carefully how you walk. There's that word walk again, how you live, how you conduct yourself. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Uh, I prefer the translation of the King James there, redeeming the time. It's not just that we're putting our time to good use, but we're, we're trying to, to recoup this time, this present evil age, for notice the end of the statement, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Sometimes people talk about us living in evil days. Well, evil days doesn't just characterize 2000, 2010, 2020, or the last 100 years. But ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind has lived in evil days. That's what is around us. That is the period of time in which we live until Christ comes. Thirdly, to be spiritually dead means that we were living under the control of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and now added, following the prince of the power of the air. Prior to being saved, we were a part of Satan's kingdom, as seen in the word prince or ruler. We were following uh, the evil one as our ruler. Satan exerts a measure of authority over this world. Ephesians 2.2, where he is referred to as the power of the air. That's his authority. He has the power of the air. The Greek concept of the air was the atmosphere in which we live and breathe. So when it says that he is the prince of the power of the air, it's talking about the air that we live and we breathe. Uh, in Greek thought, there were three heavens. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who was 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now that is in keeping with Greek thought. It was a way in which it described the atmosphere. Number one, the first heaven was the air below the stars and the planets, the air in which we live and breathe. This would be the first heaven, according to Greek thought. The second heaven were the stars and the planets. They were the second heaven. So as you look up and we talk about, we use the form, we look into the heavens, meaning we look at the stars, we look at the planets, uh, we look at the universe that's around us. And then the third heaven was the abode of God, the place where God dwelt, that heaven of heavens, if you will, the heaven that is above all other heavens, the first and second. So he is the prince of this sphere. He doesn't rule over all things, but his primary domain is this earth, and he walks about it, seeking whom he may devour. See, Satan is still exerting his power over those who do not belong to Christ. For it says, in which you once walked, that's past tense, we'll get to that, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the spirit of God is still at work, but he's at work 
in the, the uh, ones that are sons of disobedience. They are sons of his. They are followers of his. Note it is the sons of disobedience that the evil one is at work. They are characterized as people living in disobedience to God. As we think about sin, as we think about uh, transgression, uh, one way in which we ought to think about it is that ultimately it's disobedience. It is going against uh, our God. Thus the actions of the non-believer are a defiance of God. It's a rejection of God's authority. It's a rejection of what we know about him and how he would have us to live. Uh, fallen mankind is basically libertarian, wanting to be free from the shackles of following God. And that's how they view it. They view it as a prison. They view it as a restraint that our God wants to keep us from doing those things that we would enjoy and delight in. D, before we were saved and made alive, we used to be live as dead people live. Number one, before we were saved, we lived, walked the way all non-believers walked. Or it says in which you once walked. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins are governed by their sinful desires, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we are simply, we were simply following our thoughts and our desires. For it says in verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, later in Ephesians, it says, Now this I say and testify, Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It is not simply that we had sinful thoughts from time to time. Rather, our thinking was corrupt. We did not think straight. We had a distorted view of life. And we lived in keeping with that distorted worldview. That's very important to keep in mind. When it's talking about this mind of ours before we were saved, it is a fallen mind. It's a corrupt mind. It, it, it's like a compass that's broken, uh, that doesn't show true north. Uh, our consciences uh, were marred. Uh, there's not a good sense of what is right and what is wrong. The determination comes from what we feel like doing. And so we did what we felt like doing, and we viewed life in keeping with this sinful mind. That's why Romans chapter 12 says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Uh, it begins with a new way of thinking. It begins with a new thought process. Our eyes are open. Uh, we saw in chapter 1, the prayer was that the eyes of your uh, faith might be enlightened. They would know what is the hope of the calling, what the riches of glory of the inherited saints, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. So our eyes open, see clearly, have a right perspective, a right worldview. For thus by simply do what came naturally to us, we were incurring God's wrath. For it says, and we're by nature children of wrath, meaning that we had a sinful nature and we lived in keeping with that sinful nature, and thus we incurred God's wrath. God was angered by us following our sinful nature. And in conclusion, we were no different 
than the fallen mankind. For it says in verse 3, it's like the rest of the world. Like the rest of the world. So it is teaching us what we were like before we were saved. And at the very end, there was no difference between us and anyone else who was unsaved. That's laying the foundation for the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. That there was no difference in us. That there was nothing that set us apart, nothing that distinguished us from all of the sinners around us. We were like them. Maybe not engaging in the exact same activities, but living in a sin, living in this corrupted mindset, following what we thought was right and wrong, doing our own thing and not trying to submit ourselves to God. Two, now instead of being dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive. What distinguishes us as a people is God's relationship to us. A, uh, that's a, a, what distinguishes us as a people is God's relationship to us. God had an incredible amount of pity upon us, but being rich in mercy, mercy. I said it often, I will continue to say it, that the primary distinction between grace and mercy, grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. I've used the same illustration time and time again. Hopefully you'll remember it. And eventually you'll get it if you don't remember it already. But the illustration I use for grace is if I had a $100 set of $100 bills and distributed $100 to each of you here tonight, that would be grace. That would be unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything. didn't work for it. I just simply hand you $100. That's grace. Mercy or pity talks about the condition of an individual. It talks about their plight. So if somebody comes in and they're homeless, uh, they are without food, they are suffering in some way, and so I, I walk up to that person and hand them $100 because I have pity upon them in their position, they're receiving grace because they have uh, not deserved it, but it's motivated by pity out of this sense of compassion wanting to deliver them from their misery. Key thought, delivering them from their mercy, from their problems, from their bad estate. <clears throat> Secondly, God set his love upon us Verse 4, but being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Three, God had pity and love for us even when we were living the way a dead person sinfully lives. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So he's not loving us because of our goodness. But he's showing his love, giving us his love, sharing his love with us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning living this habitually sinful lifestyle. Romans says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The point is, again, no merit, no goodness that he would love us. He loved us when we were unlovable. Okay? Uh, there was nothing for which 
God could look at and say, wow, that's somebody that I would love to have. But he loved us despite our corruption, our sin, our situation. B, we who once were dead, with all the characterizations that are associated with deadness described above, have now been made alive. That is, we are now in a conditioned state that is characterized as being alive. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. To be spiritually alive is to be opposite of being spiritually dead and all that it entails. Again, this is a very significant thought for Ephesians chapter 2. So when we think about being spiritually alive, first remember what it means to be spiritually dead. All of what we just talked about is part of being spiritually dead. Now we are made alive. C, to be spiritually alive is equivalent to be, being saved, and to being saved is equivalent to being spiritually alive. Those are, I was almost going to say synonymous terms. They, they certainly are synonymous in the sense that they carry the same thought, although they uh, each have their own nuance. But the point here is that if you are saved, you're alive, and if you're alive, you are saved. Now, having said that, number one, so salvation is not less than being delivered from God's wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, describing those that are spiritually dead, among whom we also once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Two, and I hope that we really grasp this concept tonight, but salvation is much more than just being delivered from God's wrath. It is being delivered from all that is associated with being dead. To be saved is to be alive. Okay. I can't stress this enough because so many people's concept of salvation is that we're delivered from the penalty of sin. That's true. But that's a very truncated understanding. That's only one part where people like to make that the whole, that that's what it means. If you're saved, you're saved from hell. All right? It means you're, you're afraid from God's wrath. That is true. But there's so much more to being saved, to being delivered. We aren't just delivered from God's wrath. We are delivered from death. He's made us alive. We sang the song, wish we would have sung it tonight. Death is arrested. Death is arrested. So, we read in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, again, characterizing what death is. And just think about, when you think about the word saved, it means to be delivered, to be delivered. So as you read about death, think about what you're being delivered from. 
and you were delivered in trespasses and sins, delivered from that which you once walked, delivered from following the course of this world, delivered from following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in passions of our flesh, but we're delivered from living in the passions of our flesh. We're delivered from carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we are delivered, yes, from God's wrath. But we're delivered from all of that because we've been made alive. We're made alive. And thirdly, we're now outside of Satan's reach and control. Ephesians 2.6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, this builds off of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. This power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's a beautiful word picture here. And the word above is a spatial word. When we read that, it's easy to think of that as being above, as being superior to all authority and power and dominion. That is true. We are superior to, God's power is superior to all dominion and authority and power. But what is in view here is that we're in the third heaven. We are in the heavenly places. We're in the presence of God. We are out of Satan's reach. Satan's domain is the area of this world. He doesn't even have authority over the stars and the moons. He's limited to this life this present age in which we live and in the surroundings we have. His power is extremely limited, but we are up here delivered from Satan's realm and Satan's power and Satan's domain. So it is why Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's the same concept, the same thought. We are delivered from Satan's kingdom. We are transferred to God's kingdom. But we have this beautiful state, spatial view where before we were under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, but now we are seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, Ephesians says. Number three, the purpose that God had in saving us and making us alive. Ephesians 2, 7, so that, so now we get into the purpose. A, God saved us in order to lavish his grace and mercy on us, not only now, but in the time to come. Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages, that which is yet still future to us, that time of being in the presence of God and that time in which Christ is going to reign on earth, all these future ages, and then eternity. So that in the coming ages, number one, that uh, he might show, that is, lavish upon us the immeasurable riches 
of his grace. God is so wealthy in his grace that it will never run out. Immeasurable riches of his grace. You can't measure it. You, you, you can't quantify it. It would be impossible to come up with an exhaustive way of measuring the grace of God. His grace is, is infinite. So that his grace will never stop being shown. It will last. I'm reaching retirement real soon. And one of the concerns that they tell you that you always need to be concerned about is eventually running out of money. That uh, the longer you live, uh, the more money it's going to take, and you've got to be careful that you don't run out of money by the time that uh, you eventually die. Well, we will never, ever run out of God's grace. He's immeasurably rich. For the ages to come, for all eternity, it will never be stopped showing, God will never stop showing his grace to us. Number two, God's kindness is the application of God's grace to us. Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. So that's the way in which God's grace is demonstrated. The fact that he's kind to us. That's how gracious he is. That instead of treating us with wrath, he treats us with kindness. The word for in verse 8 is an explanation of the kindness that is shown in verse 7. How is God kind to us? Answer, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved. So the next question is number four, why is salvation so gracious? Well, salvation is not sourced in humans. None of this comes from us. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. We haven't made ourselves alive. We haven't saved us. We haven't done this. God has done this. B, salvation in its entirety is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So what is this gift? And uh, here, theologians love to get into uh, debates, especially between Arminian and Calvinists, etc., because of this word it. It is the gift of God. What is it referring to? And the grammarians love to point out that the it is a neuter and faith is a feminine word, so they say that the gift cannot be the it. The, the faith cannot be the it. Measure of truth in that, but it's a small measure and it's not ultimately right. For the gift of God is all of salvation. For by grace you have been saved, it's the gift of God. So salvation is what God's gift is to us. It isn't just the faith, but it includes the faith. You can't distinguish the faith. Salvation in its entirety is God's gift to us. His giving us life is a gift. All these blessings that we enjoy is a gift. 
God has just richly bestowed salvation, life in its fullness to us. So number two, the gift of God includes the faith to believe. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. So the batteries are included, if you will. The, that which makes this salvation operable. He didn't just give us a toy at Christmas, he gave us the batteries to make the toy work. All right. So this wonderful gift of God, this salvation, he gave us everything that we needed in order to be made alive. That's grace. That's God's goodness to us. That's his kindness to us. That's what God has done for us. Given us salvation. He saved us. Which is far different from an idea that he provided for us a way to be saved. No. Jesus Christ came into the world to save people. John 17, to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me, of which I will lose none. God gave us salvation. God gave us life. So three, but the gift is not limited to faith. Salvation from beginning to end in its entirety is a gift from God. Now what was stated positively before that salvation is by grace is stated negatively. That is, salvation is not by works, just so we don't lose it, we don't lose sight of it. Verse 9, not as a result of works. Works or merit is antithetical to grace. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. When we are talking about works in this context, it's about that which is meritorious. It's about that which is deserving. If faith came from us, if faith is what distinguishes us from those around us, then it's a work. It's meritorious. It's what distinguishes us. It's why we're saved and someone else is not. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that this is a gift. This is a gift. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were living this way. And God loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It isn't our faith that distinguished us. The faith is a gift coming from God, making us his own. D, since every aspect of our salvation is a product of God's grace... There's no grounds for us to brag or for that which to take credit or for that which to be praised. Ephesians 2.9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, so that none of us can say we deserve to be saved. Not one of us can boast, brag, take credit for our salvation in any way. If it were our faith, then we could say, look at me, I had faith, when all these other people didn't. That must make me special, that must make me wiser, that must make me more holy, must make me something. No, there's no ground to boast. There's no credit that we can take. It's 
simply a gift that God saved us. Well, a lot of times we're happy if we get that far, but there's more to it. B, God saved us in order to make us anew. Salvation is a result not of our work, but God's work. A, as Christians, we're the product of God's skillful craftsmanship, for we are his workmanship. And uh, I, I love that word picture, workmanship. I, I'm not good at working with my hands at all. I, I am terrible. And not only am I bad at it, but I don't like doing it. I, I, take, I take no pleasure in it because I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not good at it. Uh, when I was a kid, my brother, who is nine years older than I, was incredible at putting models together. I, I, he had such patience, and he had such skill. And he loved putting models together, and the more intricate the model, the more he loved it. And he would build these massive, you know, it would be, some of these were six feet, seven feet long models of sailing ships with three masts, you know, the, the huge one with all the riggings and with the sails, and he would do every meticulous thing. He'd, he would rig it, he'd put the, the sails up, he would put little men on it. I mean, the doors would open. He would do everything. And I just look at that amazement. I limited myself to putting models together of cars. But I never really put a model car together. What I did was I would put the wheels on it. I would glue the hood shut so I didn't have to work with putting the engine in. And, you know, I'd slap this thing together in about 10, 15 minutes and call it done. We are his workmanship. It speaks of the care in which he has formed us. The exactitude in which he went about his work. So that that which is produced is really fine. Really fine. Those of you who are craftsmen can look at somebody's work and see the distinction between the rough carpenter and the fine carpenter and the master carpenter, the person who can really work with wood. We are his workmanship. Romans talks about us as being a clay that was modeled. We are his workmanship. Secondly, We've been created anew. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Once again, if you just look at this symbolic language, tells us, 
of our passivity when it comes to salvation. We are created in Christ Jesus. Think about creation. What role did mankind play in creation? God simply created. He spoke and it came into being. Think even about your own birth. What role did you play in your mother's conception of you? Who asked to be born? Who asked your mother or father to be your mother and father? You were simply created. We are a new creation. God has started over with us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We lived in a fallen world and everything that surrounds us is fallen. Now I'm getting beyond Ephesians, but this word picture, Romans, talks about the fact how he's redeeming all of creation. He's dealing with every aspect of the fall. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new existence of which he's going to deal with all sin. But Ephesians is limiting it to God's work in us. He's created us anew. To be what God intended us to be before the fall. Two, God created us anew so that we would manifest the life of godliness. Ephesians 2.19 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. We're not saved on the basis of good works, but we're saved in order to perform good works. And those good works are referred to again in the end of Ephesians, Ephesians 4.24, to put on the new self, created, there it is again, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the summation of what good works are. In righteousness and holiness, created after God. Remember that when mankind was created, mankind was created in God's image after his likeness. That's not talking about a physical likeness, but it's a a likeness of his being, of his character. And so being created in the image of God, mankind was given dominion over the fish, over the sea, over all these things. So mankind was to live and reign and rule and act the way God did. We were to be representations of who God is. Just like the word Christian means little Christ. Little Christ. We were created to be in the image of Christ, to live like Christ, to demonstrate Christ so that people would see Christ in us with the ultimate manifestation of true godliness, which is God-likeness. So that we bear the image, the family resemblance not with physical features, but in conduct, 
in actions, in attitude, in thought, that we would interact with people the way that God interacts, that we would desire the things that God desires. So those sinful passions have been changed into godly compassions so that we hunger, we thirst after righteousness. We want to be delivered from our sins. We want to cast off those chains. We don't want to be slaves anymore to those passions. But we long to be free. We long to want to glorify Christ. We no longer see defiance, but a willingness of, of accepting his authority. Not just resigning to it, but welcoming it to know how wonderful it is that God rules over us, that God watches over us, that God protects us, that he's the kind of ruler that we want to have in our life. We want to get rid of that other ruler, that evil one. We don't want to follow that way. We want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God saved us. Number three, God had made ready these good works in advance. God had cooked them up ahead of time, if you will. I was trying to think of an analogy for prepared. Ephesians 2.19, which God prepared beforehand. It's like salvation is a, a plan. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, there's that purpose again, to be holy and blameless before him. That isn't just, that isn't just positionally. That isn't just so that we are standing in heaven and no longer viewed as sinful. That isn't just so that we stand in heaven and our sins are forgiven. But it's so that when we stand before God and in all eternity future, we are living righteous and holy lives. Sin will never be manifest in the new heaven and the new earth. All of our actions, all our interactions, will be holy and just and right and good. That's what's going to make heaven heaven. That's really what the bliss is. It's, it's the very presence of God, and then it's living with one another without ever a sinful thought or a sinful deed. Can you imagine how different life would be? Living with one another without a sinful thought and without a sinful deed? Well, the glorious truth is God saved us so that that's the way we live now. So we'd be people living without sinful thoughts and sinful deeds. That was his agenda. And that's what we're starting to, to do. He's created us anew. We're on that path. We're on that road. We're different than what we once were. We're not yet what we will be. But we're on a journey. We're on a road that God prepared beforehand before we were born. Before 
the foundation of the world. You see, God not only had a plan, but he made the preparations. He didn't just have a recipe. He put it into place. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. He caused that to happen. He sent his son into this world. Into this present evil age in which we live. In this sphere in which we live, in which Satan is active and at work. To die on the cross. Not just so that our sins are forgiven. He died on the cross to deliver us from sin. Not just the penalty. He died on the cross so that we would experience his mercy and grace for all eternity future. He had pity upon us and our sins. So he wanted to deliver us from our sins. So that we wouldn't know sin's misery any longer. That's why it's mercy because he thought of our condition and that condition needed to be changed just as in likeness to the Old Testament when God heard the cries of his people and delivered Egypt, excuse me, delivered the Israelites out of Egypt out of their bondage, to be taken under the wing and care of God, to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and gave them laws so that they would not be like the nations around them and would not experience the diseases, the hardships, the difficulties, like those nations round about him. And then ultimately, of course, eternal life. So, for it is God's design that our lives be characterized by these good works. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now the circle is complete. We who were once dead in our sins lived a life of corruption. You were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked. Now we have been made alive to live a life of godliness. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for good works, that we should walk in them. That that would characterize our life. Godliness, holiness. That's God's design. That's God's design. That's what God is doing. Not just saving us from sin's penalty. Saving us from sin's misery. Heartache power over us, our own sinful desires, our own lusts, and the power and domain of the evil one who's constrained to this world, this life, who's limited in what he's able to do. But God has transferred us from his kingdom to his own kingdom, far above all earthly power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but as which is to come. We're up here with God, out of Satan's reach, to experience God's grace, which is immeasurable, will never run out for all eternity. And we will be made like him. 
For we will be like him when we will see him as he is. Conclusion. Our former life did not keep us from being saved. Our new life was not the condition on which we were saved. We once were spiritually dead with all that it entails. By the grace of God, now we are spiritually alive, delivering us from all the spiritual death entails. We who are dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive in Christ Jesus. To the praise of his glorious grace. You know, when we stand in the presence of God, not one of us will have any inkling of self-worth or self-merit. When we stand in the presence of God for the first time, we will have true praise and worship. It will be the first time that we really come to grips of which he deserves all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. As much as we're trying to understand that now, as much as we might be reformed in our thinking, as much as we're willing to accept that salvation is a gift, even so, our hearts and minds are not open to it like it will be. And as much as we long for Christ's reign over us, it's when we are in his presence that we'll understand the blessing of belonging to him and doing his will. It will be complete joy. It will be complete delight. It will be absolute fulfillment of all that we wanted to be as human beings. For the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we will. We will enjoy him. We will enjoy his presence. We will enjoy living righteously. We won't feel like we have been deprived because we can't sin anymore. We're going to be so thankful, so happy, so delighted. And God will be truly glorified as we live with him in a reflection of his righteousness and goodness and holiness in our interaction with one another. Is it any wonder then that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift that we have of salvation. The gift that you have granted to us to be delivered from death and given life, raised with Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. Thank you, O oh God, for your wonderful design. Thank you that you paid not just the penalty for our sin, but you looked upon our misery. You looked upon our heartache. You looked at all that sin 
does to us in order to deliver us from our sin. The chains are off. Oh Lord, help us to appropriate more and more the grace and power and goodness of God. May we look not to ourselves, but look to you. May we ask, oh God, daily, constantly asking and pleading with you to give us that power over sin in our life that we would say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And yes, Lord, we do hunger, we do thirst, we do long for that day in which we will be in your presence. And we take delight in knowing that we will worship you in spirit and in truth for the first time, really. And we will give you all the honor, we'll give you all the praise, we will take our crowns and we'll cast them at your feet, knowing that, oh God, the praise does not belong to us, it belongs to you. And we will be delighted in you and in one another. So, Lord, give us more of a taste of heaven today. Make our lives sweet in the way in which we respond to one another. Oh, Lord, may we joy, experience joy and delight as our lives become more holy and, and sin's misery and heartache is not manifested in us. So that we are bogged down and miserable because of our sin, but we have joy and delight in walking with you and fellowshipping with you. Even as Ephesians tells us to pray, we have these repeated prayers in Ephesians. Lord, we ask now, open our hearts and minds to these truths. Help us to understand them. Help us to live by them. And Lord, help us to glorify you for the riches of your glorious grace and kindness towards us. For by grace we are saved. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.